This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. This is the Skate Podcast, talking Bruins hockey with WEI Bruins writers Scott McLaughlin, Bridget Prue, and Brian DeFelice. Lace them up for some beast talk. It's Odyssey's The Skate Pod on WEI. Woo! Welcome into episode 270 of the Skate Podcast. I am Brian DeFelice, joined by Bridget Prue and Scott McLaughlin. Now, before we get into our opening shifts regarding the Boston Bruins and all things Bruins related, we didn't talk about this pre-podcast, but I got to come out here and blitz Scott McLaughlin. Scotty, what happened to your BU Terriers this weekend? Getting swept by BC in the Battle of Comav on Nesson and with National and, and uh, North American attention on these games. Yeah, t- tough weekend. Got to give credit to BC. They were... Much more opportunistic team. Uh, got better goaltending on the weekend. I, th- I think it's clear that the teams are close. I mean, both teams are close. BU had territorial advantage, had chances at times. Like, it's not a huge difference there, but BC made the couple extra plays. That all freshman line of Perot, Smith, and Leonard was disgusting all weekend. Uh, they scored four of their goals. Um, yeah. BU's got to use it as a learning opportunity that they hadn't lost since November. I think, you know, maybe, you know, they're feeling pretty high and mighty. And this weekend was certainly a wake up call. So they better use it that way. They've, they've got a week to, to get right. And then they face them again in the bean pot. I was going to say, it's going to make the bean pot very interesting. I like that you just totally sneak attacked him with that, Brian. That was great. Um, I totally approve. Uh, and, <laughs> I, I and... was fairly certain it was coming up at some point. So. <laughs> not but, not, but not off the hop. Not off the hop. <laughs> we're, we're talking pre, pre-recording about what we're going to discuss, and I, this never came up. So I just I, I knew I was going to blitz Scott about this. But, I mean, Scott, what, what happened with, uh, with Celebrini and, and Lynn Hudson? Uh, it just kind of they were quiet until the last minute for Celebrini. Like that's d- does BU kind of ride or die with those two players? Um, I mean, look, any any college team to an extent is going to ride or die with their stars. I, I do think BU has pretty good depth, but yeah, certainly you you want more from them. They you know they didn't have a point until late in the third period Saturday. Uh, Celebrini scores, Hudson gets an assist on it. That they had some chances. Celebrini had 12 shots on goal for the weekend. Um, but you know, I, I think when they get frustrated, it's like they're missing just the one extra like oomph in their attack. It's like they'll have possession, they'll take shots from the outside, but it's like get to the inside, like get to the front. They, like they just need that little extra drive. Um but yeah, it, you know, and again, credit to BC. The the Gautier line with uh, to the two Bruins prospects on the wings, Yelvik and Gasso, 
they were up against the Celebrini line a lot. And again, Celebrini had his chances, but I think they did about as good of a job as any any line could reasonably do against Celebrini. Yeah, well, now, they're be a... now they're tied in the standings. And uh, Scott, did you go to both games? Yes. He did. He did. Uh, so he's a jinx is what I was, he was trying to Scott was here. Scott was underneath the the white banner at a Guinness that said not from Boston, referring to the BU stance. <laughs> he was he was the one holding it up. Yeah, I actually made it. Yeah. That, that, that's <laughs> how I spent last week making a giant like section wide banner. Is that why you took you took a break from writing to to make those signs? Right. Yeah. Well he yeah. was he was still writing, just not just not as many words. Um <laughs> yeah. but yeah, I mean, I think there's gonna there's, so there's gonna be a bit of a. It was pretty cool on on the fr- uh, Friday night broadcast of Nesson. Um, in in one of the intermissions, they had one of the college hockey like poll uh, uh, analysts or one of the individuals who takes part in like the rankings for college hockey and, and what goes into the rankings each and every week. And it was it was a lot actually. It was pretty fascinating. So I I imagine that BC will leapfrog BU, but if if those teams are being being honest, I think there's some bragging rights at the Garden um, in February. That probably means, you know, a little something extra. Yeah, You're I mean, tearing in the press box, Scott. Never, never, ever. But yeah, I mean, realistically, like they they can't face on the Beanpot final because they're facing the first week. But that's, that's that should essentially be the Beanpot final. Either one of them should beat Northeastern or, or Harvard. But yeah, you could see these teams competing for Hockey East Championship, National Championship, Frozen Four, like wherever it's. Um, yeah, BC is going to be number one. They're number one in the pairwise, deservedly so. BU dropped to three in the pairwise. They'll. My guess is they might end up three in the polls on Monday afternoon too. But either way, like they're they're still two of the top teams. But yeah, for now, BC gets the bragging rights. All right. Well, I I, I promise. The listeners that we are gonna shift gears to the Bruins now. I just had to get Scott's thoughts off the hop. That's that should be a segment. Scott's thoughts. <laughs> I like that one. All right. Um. So the as Bruins were the use Scott's face on a popcorn graphic. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um. So the Bruins finished the first, the unofficial first half of the NHL season, heading into the All Star break with a six-two win over the Flyers in Philadelphia. Uh, the Flyers honored former Bruin and Stanley Cup champion with the Bruins, uh, Mark Recchi, who went to the Philadelphia Flyers Hall of Fame. Um, and, you know, it just topped off an amazing first half for this Bruins team, uh, finishing the first half with first place rights in the division, the conference, and the league overall. Um, let's hop into the opening shifts. And Bridget, why don't we start with you? All right, sure. Yeah, so this this isn't just something that happened in the Flyers game. This is something that's kind of been a trend. Um, and Charlie McAvoy recently has been bringing the offense again. He scored and he had an assist against the Flyers, but he also has um, had four points in the last five games. He's his plus minus has been starting to tick up and up and up. He had he was plus five just in that Montreal game, <laughs> which is obviously going to going to do a favor for you in that stat category. And we've talked about the plus minus. I can already see Scott trying to open his mouth and say something about plus minus over here. Um, But just wait a second. Okay. Just wait a second. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Um, So yeah, Charlie McAvoy, we had talked about how he had in the past been more offensively involved than at certain points this season. And now we're, we're seeing that, um, that back in his game recently and, and going to the net, he scored 
um, while he was kind of sneaking back door. Great pass by Zaka, by the way, um, with McAvoy sneaking towards the net. So he's he's jumping in. He's feeling confident. And uh, in general, just was a great win, like for confidence or just for, you know, feeling good about yourself before the break for the Bruins. Yeah, and so my my opening shift will start with the game and expand a little bit from there. But David Pasenak just completely took over uh, late in the first period. I thought the Bruins actually started pretty slow. Flyers were up nine four in shots at one point, and it looked like it looked like it might be another game like the Ottawa game where it's like, all right, well, just grind through, find a way to get a couple points, and get into the All Star break and regroup. Instead, Pasenak just totally takes over. Scores the first goal with a snapper off the rush. Uses the defenseman as a screen. Doesn't get a point in the second goal, but he does all the work down low to to help set it up. Um, Then they score on his next shift. The next time he's out there, he ends up collecting a rebound. Him and Vin Reemsdyke go to work on the forecheck. He collects a rebound scores. First shift of the second period, he sets up Vin Reemsdyke for a goal. That line... I think Van Riemsdyk was off the ice for one of them on a change, but him, Pasenak and Zaka, four straight shifts, the Bruins scored that they were on the ice. Like, just just insane. And at that point, it's it's game over. Like, it, it was 4 nothing at the end of one, you know, f- five by the time uh, Pasenak has, you know, like I said, set of Van Riemsdyk, that first goal in the second period, um, and just caps off a tremendous pre-All-Star break stretch for Pasternak, uh, where he is now sitting at 72 points in 49 games, 33 goals, 39 assists. He's third in the NHL in both goals and points. And again, on pace to surpass his 113 points from last season and set a new career high again. So just a phenomenal, again, we're going to say first half just because it's the all-star break, obviously a little bit past the first half, but, um, yeah, he he takes over and has, you know, a star moment heading into the All-Star game. Yeah, and, and with Van Riemsdyk, he, Van Riemsdyk did to the Flyers what he's been doing to the Bruins for the past several years. Like, James Van Riemsdyk used to just put up points against the Bruins, and he was a frustrating player uh, when he was on the Flyers for Boston to deal with, and now they, they kind of got a taste of it right back at him when Van Riemsdyk played uh, against them. Well, and and sticking it to John Tortorella a little bit, like they things did not end well between the two of them there, and um, and Van Riems like obviously had a down year last year, so I'm sure it felt great for him to show that you know he still has he's been showing that all season, but to go out and have a three point game um, in Philly, you know, with Torts on the other bench. Yeah, it's always funny. I always you know at least find it amusing when he's just shaking his head like Tortorella is just like pissed off shaking his head on the bed <laughs> and I just sit there and laugh like this one of the better sights in in the NHL is when when he's just fuming Tortorella has that face on the bench anytime his team isn't playing well and and for the record I I like Tortorella like I I I, I like him um but anytime his team's not playing well or they give up a goal or there's a bad call in the official by the officials you'll always see him on the bench with his his like hand up against the glass or just like arms crossed, just like shaking his head. And the, the sarcastic smirk on his face of disbelief is like the face you have 
when you go through a drive through and you drive and you drive away and like you realize they forgot like half of your meal and you're just like, <laughs> you know what I mean? You're just like, what the, f-? you know what I mean? But um, anyway, so Scott, as far as Pashnak goes, there's a lot more to get into with him. Um, just where he is at his, uh, at this stage of his career in general and how much there is to like about his game outside of the goal scoring, which I think is, I think it's underrated. Um, I think he gets, there's, there's a narrative out there surrounding Pashnak that all he is is a goal scorer. And when he's not scoring goals, he's turning the puck over. And I just think it's, I think it's, um, that's one way to certainly not talk about 90% of the game that's happening out there. And I think that um, he deserves a lot of credit for what he does outside of scoring and, and improving in those areas um, from the time he was 18 in the league to now he's like 27 or 28. Um, but also on Pashnak, uh, Kevin Paul Dupont tweeted this out six hours ago, and it's it's everybody knows David Pashnak is one of the best goal scorers in the world. But um, since the beginning of last season, uh, he is he is the number one goal scorer in the world um, with uh, 94 goals since the start of last regular season. Uh, number two is Connor McDavid. I don't know if you guys have heard of him, um, and he has 84 goals. So just really impressive, um, really impressive hockey by David Pashnak, and I think Bruins fans. Uh, should be, you know, lucky to watch him every night. Uh, for me, like, yeah, Scott, you mentioned it. A lot of first half chatter, unofficial first half chatter. That that's my opening shift, and we're gonna dive into it more as as the episode unfolds. But it's just, it's amazing what this what this hockey team has done this year. Um, everybody involved deserves all the credit in the world because there's been so much turnover, high end turnover, leadership turnover. Um, This Bruins team had every reason in the book, every excuse in the book to have a flat out transition year. I know that they have pillars in place in McAvoy and Pashnak and, you know, Marshan and Swift. I get all that, but you know what? So do the Pittsburgh Penguins in guys like Crosby and Malkin, and they're having a down year. Like their teams have pillars and have transition years all the time. And this Bruins team found a way to not only avoid that, but continued to be the class of the NHL, um, certainly in the standings over the last two calendar years. And, and there's a lot of reasons for it, a lot of surprising reasons for it, but that's just my opening shift. There's a lot of directions to go, but just first half of the season, unofficial first half of the season over, Bruins are first in their division conference in the league and looking like they deserve to be where they are in the standings and doing it. Yeah, fewest losses in the whole NHL up to this point. Only have nine losses. They haven't even lost in regulation 10 times yet. And we thought, like, we didn't think they were going to miss the playoffs when we did our preseason predictions. We also did not predict them to be not just first in the conference, but first in the league. They're tied with Vancouver right now. Um, and they've played the exact same amount of games as Vancouver. So they're they're even uh, at top at the top of the standings. But who would have thought that they would once again not have uh, 10 losses by the All-Star break? <laughs> Yeah, it's great. Like, I remember, you know, we were talking about how these teams that have historic regular seasons and then collapse in the playoffs, like there's examples of teams that learn from that and come back and win the next year, right? The the 95-96 Red Wings lost to the Avs in the conference finals, came back, won the next two cups, actually. The 18-19 Lightning, that embarrassing sweep at the hands of Columbus in the first round, they came back and won the next two cups. And we were like, well, that unfortunately that might not apply to the Bruins because there might just be so much turnover that even if even if they do learn those lessons and the guys who come back, 
are more dialed in and re- and better prepared the next time around. They just might not have the talent to realistically be a cup contender. And I think we're all, you know, reshaping that opinion. Like it, it, you look at what they've done and it's like, how can you not call them a cup contender right now? They're Brian, you mentioned where they are in the standings. Even beyond that, I was looking at five on five goal differential today. Cause that tends to be pretty important. You know, playoffs are often won and lost uh, at five on five. And, they're, they're a plus 34 at five on five. Only the Vancouver Canucks and Winnipeg Jets are ahead of them, plus 41 and plus 43. And then after that, no one else is better than plus 17. So it's like three teams that are more than double anyone else in the league. And the Bruins, obviously, the only one of those in the Eastern Conference. So, yeah, like we all probably have, you know, question marks, things we still want answered in the second half, things – you know, we're going to be talking about what do they do at the trade deadline and all that, but the foundation is is there. Like, the, the goaltending has once again been great. Defense hasn't always been perfect, but for the most part, it's still been a strong suit. And now, the way the offense has come along, especially since Christmas, I've, I've mentioned this before, but it remains true. They're the top scoring offense in the NHL since Christmas. They're now up to sixth in the season, and they're like a goal or two from being fourth. So, you know, we had all these concerns about even early this season. I was like, well, they kind of look like a middle-of-the-pack offense. Is that really get good enough? Well, they're not middle-of-the-pack anymore. They've they've climbed way up. It's maybe another uh, Bruins-Vancouver Stanley Cup final. That would be a <laughs> lot of fun. And for Bruins fans, uh, they want the same result. And uh, Vancouver, maybe, maybe not so much. Uh, maybe they wouldn't want that matchup. But <laughs> it could happen. Could happen. Those are the top two teams in the league right now. It would be kind of kind of weird, funny, deja vu situation uh, if that were to happen. Obviously, we're still a long way away from that. Uh, I'd be I'd be happy with that though. Um, but yeah, you you talk about the offense coming back up to par, and this is huge too. And I'm gonna knock on wood on my desk right here because obviously talking about injuries, you you never want to jinx anything, but. They've in the last few weeks, they've gotten back their injured players. Like Derek Forbert's come back into the lineup. Allmark um, didn't end up being back until out Saturday. As, until Saturday. Yeah. He'll but he's not back on long term IR though, right? Like he's not Well, we, we don't know. He has to undergo yeah. further testing. I mean, it sounds like it was probably a setback of the same thing. So yeah. I Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Unfortunately, I don't have warm, fuzzy feelings about that. I think that that might be a. Do you guys? Do you guys know that? 
Do you guys know that video of like, um, uh, like somebody filming a, like a college classroom or something like that? And it's like a, like an old professor. And he, every single day he walks in the same way with like a, just the same yeah. outfit, just different colors. And he goes, hi, hi, whatever. That's what I feel like forwards like with these injuries. Like he, it's like every other game he comes back and he comes out with a, with an injury. It's always something like that, but that's the style of hockey he plays, right? He's, he's paid to eat, to eat pucks. Yeah. Well, I, and I, you know, I'm not even sure it's necessarily like related to blocking shots. Cause I'm pretty sure it's a groin injury he's been dealing with. I think, I, th- I think that's out there. I think like either Kevin Paul Dupont or Steve Conroy reported that. Um, unfortunately, like, that's the kind of thing that just lingers. And we had talked about after that Ottawa game, how, you know, we only played, I think it was like 12 minutes and only one minute on the PK. And I was like, well, I wonder if originally they were hoping to rest them that night. And you don't know, like, you know, I, I don't, necessarily think they pushed him too hard or whatever like a, a re-aggravation can happen anytime it can happen in practice but it just sucks like it clearly he just has not been able to get healthy and stay healthy this year and now he's you know dealing with it again yeah so what i was saying is you know obviously it was nice that forward came back they're relatively healthy um like it, my main point was that it would have been huge if they had lost Omar in the last few weeks, but him coming back and playing the way he's played, uh, they still have both of their goalies healthy, uh, which is huge. And uh, if Forbert is back down for a little bit, then that's, that's obviously an injury that hurts your penalty kill, though they've been getting it done without him. Um, and other, other players have stepped up in the meantime, like, like Weatherspoon and um, you know, Laura has been, able to be someone that could be counted on when he's been called up. So I think that if you, if you think about the the variables, the unknowns that we had at the start of the year, the, the main one was center depth. And I feel like because of the way that coils played and, and Zaka is still a, a good center. He, he maybe hasn't taken the role and run with it. We thought maybe he might be taken over for Bergeron. seems like coil has more, um, stepped up a little bit than, than Zaka, but still both of them are, are great centers. The question at center, it doesn't feel like a huge issue anymore. Like Morgan Geeky has been good when called upon at center. Matt Patra is still a work in progress, but he can he can give you um, what you need at center as well. So they they haven't struggled in that. And that, that was like the big off-season question. Yeah. And there, again, there's, there's so many there's so many different individuals pulling on the rope as to why they are where they are right now. Um, and, and so, so the, the center conversation, I'll put that off to the side for right this second and come back to it. But like when we were talking earlier this year, um, off season, preseason, you know, even up until whatever, like month and a half, two months ago, it was kind of like, they're going to have to rely on their goaltending and their defense. And they were, they were relying on their goaltending heavily in the, in the in the first month and a half of the season. The defense was bending a lot, and the reason that the defense wasn't breaking was because the goaltending was was standing on their head. Um, but even still, like we we figured that defense and goaltending would structure this team to be in every single game, and they have a superstar in David Pasternak and a couple of other and a, a star in Brad Marchand and some complimentary players enough around them to score enough goals to get them to a playoff position. 
Well, I don't think anybody on this podcast anticipated, and many fans didn't anticipate, was just how much depth scoring, consistent depth scoring, you were going to get beyond the Bruins' top offensive players. And now you're talking about a team that's, as Scott mentioned, all the analytics tell you this, especially five on five. It's like they're not relying on goal taking and defense. Every aspect of the game, even strength, special teams, um, all facets, everybody's playing well. And Bridget, you mentioned Morgan Geeky. Like, I mean, Morgan Geeky's got 23 points in 43 games. Trent Frederick, we've talked about approaching 30 points in 50 games. DeBrusque, 25 points after a slow start. A lot of those points coming in recent weeks. Um, Heinen's, you know, 18 points. James Van Reems, like 32 points, 45 games. Like, that is production from players that we we could have hoped for, best case scenario, but didn't realistically think that would happen. And it is. And the center depth, yeah, that's another storyline. But it, everybody pulling on the rope is is such – it's the key to where why they are where they are. Yeah. we Like, we talked last year about how, how many guys had career years points-wise, and it's like – well, that's just one of those seasons that like, you know, you can't, you can't duplicate, you know, that many guys having career years. Well, Charlie Coyle is going to have the most points of his career. Trent Frederick's going to have the most points of his career. Pavel Zak is right in line with his career high from last year. Um, you know, well, Van like Riemsdyk is Morgan Keaton is going to have a career high. Like, yeah. And, and Van Jacob Bosnox might have a career high again, which is crazy. <laughs> Brad Marshall might have a career high in goals. Like it, it, they are getting guys stepping up again. And it's, um, you know, those guys who have stepped up over what we maybe thought their ceiling was, who have pushed it higher. And then, Brian, like you mentioned, you know, you got to give credit to like the value signings, especially Van Riemsdyk and Heinen, um, as guys who are just stepping up and, and, like you said, providing that secondary scoring. And even like even Patra, who none of us have mentioned. Now Patra has slowed down his production. Then he's been utilized in a, in a in a weird way with the with the set days off, being a younger player, um, getting acclimated to the pro level, um, going to World Juniors. He's been battling some injury. He talked about lingering issues with with Forbert. I think Patra has some sort of shoulder injury that doesn't easily get solved or something like that. Maybe. Well, I think so. I guess we don't know for sure, but Montgomery was asked if the injuries were lingering, and he said one of them's lingering, one of them's new. So I guess yeah. I'm thinking Forbes is lingering, but I guess it's possible that it's Patra lingered and and Forbes new. But I think it's yeah. probably the other. I think it might be a new thing for Patra. Well, point being, he's battling right, and he's and he's contributing the best that he can in his first go around as a pro. Um, Mason Lorai, when called up, has been producing. Um, I think you're starting to see some, some fans aren't really high on Jesper Boquist. I, I like him. I think I like his speed. I like his, I like his offensive, um, his natural offensive gifts. I just think he hasn't put them all together. I also think he's a little, a little bit snake bit and he's had some really good scoring chances. Um, I, I like Boquist's speed. And I, I like him in a fourth line role. Parker Watherspoon we've talked about has stepped up. Um, there's just, Anybody that's called that's that's called to put on a jersey this year, like they've done, they, they've they've contributed. Even if they go back down to Providence for a little bit, they come right back and they and they help out. So just contributions everywhere, and this kind of leads to <laughs> this is gonna be the, the fourth Kevin Paul Dupont plug today. But he put out a couple of great stats, and and I want to I want to mention this one because Bridget talked about the centers earlier, and this is if I had to pick the, my biggest first half storyline, it would have to be um, not skipping a. 
I, I, I don't say this disrespectfully, but they haven't really skipped a beat. If you're looking at the uh, the five on five analytics and where they are in the standings, they haven't skipped much of a beat with the absence of Bergeron and Krejci from last year. And Kevin Paul Dupont mentions that Boston's number one and two centers, Bergeron and Krejci, combined for 114 points last season. At the All Star break, their one and two centers, Coyle and Zaka, are on pace for 129 points. Um, again, just like a a round of applause for those two players and that kind that that tweet, even though it's talking about strictly point production, not the entire game. That that's that's a major reason why they are where they are. And you also think about the roles that they're used in, and like Bergeron was a guy that was on the power play and penalty kill. Like Coyle and, and Zaka both take up time on the, the power play and penalty kill. So they're not it's not just like the points, it's also situationally they're they're both 200 foot centers that can be responsive responsible defensively um and they're they're obviously different players like Krejci there's not a lot of players that you can compare Krejci to um and Bergeron is one of the best to ever uh play a 200 foot game at center so uh but it's been it's been definitely a a storyline where it it turned out on the positive side for the Bruins I think another storyline too was um what it was going to be like for Montgomery to coach a team that just didn't have that, like didn't have Bergeron, didn't have Felino, didn't have crazy, didn't have like the older veteran leadership in the locker room and also was going to go through more ups and downs and adversity this season. So um, I don't know if you have thoughts on that too. Yeah, I'll, I'll get to that next. I just wanted to wrap up with my thoughts on the the centers. I, I do think like early on the season, they missed Bergeron defense for sure like I think when you saw how many odd man rushes the Bruins are giving up how much time they're spending defending in their own zone it's like yeah that's where you miss Bergeron's ability to kill an odd man rush before it even starts by say having like a good stick or second effort either in the offensive zone or in the neutral zone and killing plays in the defensive zone you know he was so good at closing out on guys and forcing turnovers. Like I thought it was evident that they were missing that. And even that, I think they're learning and like, they're starting to figure out again, how to better defend as a team without him. Like it's like, they've realized, okay, we don't have that security blanket, like the ultimate security blanket in the middle of the ice. All right. How do we do it without it? And it's, it probably took them a little while to figure that out but I think they're getting there. They're not spending as much time in their own zone anymore. They're not giving up as many odd men rushes. Like that they are possessing the puck more in the offensive zone. So, um, you know, I, I know that there, there's some people and uh, maybe, you know, a certain guy named Adam Jones on our station and perhaps the afternoon host on the other station as well, who, you know, all season long have kind of been like, well, look, they don't they don't miss Bergeron, they don't miss Bergeron. And I don't think that's fair. Like I, I do think the areas where they missed him were very evident for a few months. Um, but they're now, I think, clearly learning like how to play without him and how to, you know, defend as a team and possess the puck the, the way that they need to. Well, Adam Jones also thought it would have been a good idea for Bergeron to, to retire like midway through last season and let the young people come up and play before we even knew that Matt Potter was ready. So um, any, any opportunity to be like, I was right. I was right. Bergeron should have retired. You know, they're better off without him. Uh, I don't think, you know, 
it sounds like a crazy, it sounded like a crazy argument then just because they're doing okay without him didn't mean it was uh, uh, going to be the best thing to happen to the Bruins. Like it wasn't, it was something they had to figure out a way to get around, like f- figure out a way to fill in for not, not like, Oh good. He's gone. Like, no, that's not, <laughs> nobody thinks that way. No. And, and, and Charlie Coyle is not as successful as he is right now. Had he not been able to, play play alongside and, and and learn from Bergeron for you know the better part of five five and a half years. And and Bergeron, same goes for Zaka. I mean Zaka played with Krejci on on the same line last year. He was able to pick up little things from him. And um you know I just think that Bergeron in particular, but him and Krejci, but Bergeron in particular, like his 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 mark is everlasting, I think, in that dressing room and, and on the ice and in the culture there. Um so even when they're gone, like I still think that their presence prior is still making a current impact. Yeah. So on the coaching, I think like we've definitely seen a, a different Montgomery and we've talked about it, how, you know, especially early on this season, he, he was more critical, more kind of blunt assessments after the games, even after wins, not giving the team as much credit. And I think part of that was just the honest truth. Like despite their record early on, they weren't, always playing great hockey. They were relying too much on goaltending. So yeah, he was going to be harder on them because he knew they had to be better. And part of it, I think is also like an actual adjustment that he's made to make sure that when there is an opportunity to kind of crack the whip a little bit, that he does it. Because I think one of the takeaways from last year was that maybe he was a little too hands off at times and, you know, kind of left it, in the hands of the leaders and assume that because they're great leaders that everything's going to be fine and he doesn't really have to get involved. And I think by the end it was, Hey, maybe he should have been more involved. Like me. Yeah. You can have great leadership, but like things still are going to sound different coming from a coach versus a teammate. So um, I do think you've seen him take a more hands-on approach, partly out of necessity and partly because I think it feels like that was maybe an area where he came up a little short last year. And he's once again, he's, you know, representing the Bruins at the all-star game this season. Um, and I don't know if you guys think that he's set up to win another Jack Adams, potentially after he won it last year, best coach in the league. He's had to do things differently, but he's still gotten great results. So um, completely different than last season, but I don't, Scott, what's your opinion on that? He's, he might get some consideration, but right now I think it's between the, the two Ricks out West, Rick bonus yeah. and Winnipeg and Rick talking and Vancouver. Talkin'. So, um, because in, in, you know, cause part of the Jack Adams is it's, it's often like a coach of a team that exceeds expectations and r- the Bruins are doing that. Like, I'm not saying they're not. So yes, he deserves consideration, but Winnipeg and Vancouver have really exceeded expectations. Yeah, they have. I guess it all depends on the second half of the season. Right. If one of those teams yeah. just falls. Off I, I mean, until until probably the last week and a half, John Tortorella would have been one of the favorites. And now, you know, Philly's lost five in a row and gotten blown out in several of those games. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, my God, is the sky falling in Philly? Yeah, and then with the Gautier stuff happening at the same time, like the sky did all start to fall at once. Probably even more importantly, Carter Hart. Like that's oh my god, yeah, I didn't even mention that. Uh, that was a huge 
that's a huge problem when you lose one of your best goalies. Like he, he's out indefinitely now because he's caught up in accused in that uh, world junior scandal, the Canada U18 team uh, whole drama that's been going on five different guys in the NHL. Like, yeah, that that's, that's ugly. And I don't, I don't even know what, what's going to happen with that. Like they're taking it very seriously in Canada as well. And it, it just, it's, it's awful for a lot of reasons. Uh, not easy to lose your goalie. Yeah, and um, yeah. also if he's just like, it, I didn't realize this was in his past. I don't know if you guys say he had kept everything pretty well under wraps from what I understand of, of who the accused NHL players were. Yeah. I mean, no one, no one really knew the names. Like obviously you could look at the roster and some guys had been ruled out. Like some guys had legit alibis like Kale McCarr was on that team, but was on campus at the time of this event. He was at UMass out in Amherst. Uh, Dante Fabro from BU was on that team. He was also on campus for finals. So like, and there, there were like, I know Rob, I think it was Robert Thomas and Jordan Cairo, like the two blue stars, I think they were, their names were cleared pretty early on, but anyone who wasn't cleared, it's like you could go through and, you know, kind of be like, okay, are they one of the suspects or whatever? But we didn't really know the names until, until recently. And, um, and we're recording this Sunday afternoon. Uh, Alex Formanton, who used to play for the Senators, was playing over in Europe just a little while ago on Sunday, was, was the first of the five to turn himself in. So um, now he is, you know, obviously officially linked to it. And the other guys, I guess, technically we're still just suspecting them for now. But, you know, you can kind of you can put the math together. Mm. Yeah, because um, wasn't there eight? There are eight people that were called well, back. Originally it was eight, but there's only five that they've ordered to turn themselves in. So I don't know if there's three more that they don't have enough evidence for or exactly what the, the deal is there. Um, switching the gears back to the coaching real quick. I don't know if you guys had a chance to watch the latest episode of Behind the Bee. I think it aired right before the Flyers game. Um, so if you haven't, then I'll just tell you what it was. But basically, there was a, there was a part where the Bruins are playing St. Louis in St. Louis, and Jim Montgomery was mic'd up. And I think, I think last year in particular, especially because the season went so well for the Bruins, um, he kind of had this like jolly, jovial Jim persona to him. And 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 going into going into last year, like the Bruins fired Bruce Cassidy and presumably because they wanted a more player friendly coach, et cetera. And um, anyway, in this game against St. Louis, he was anything but a jovial. He, he was basically, he wasn't a hard ass. He was just, he was very demanding of his players and, and um, you know, letting them know what wasn't, wasn't good enough. He was being positive when he needed to be, but he certainly was letting them have it. And there was one point where, uh, there was a commercial timeout and it appeared that the Bruins were about to go on a power play because um, McAvoy and Coyle were just like sitting on the board, just like staying off in a space or looking up at the jumbotron or something. And, and Jim Montgomery like yelled at the two of them to go on the other side of the bench and, and, and gather with their power play teammates to go over what they were about to go over. And it just showed you a different side of Montgomery. And 
I know last year, like a lot of the criticism about him was that he tinkers with the lines too much. And that's, and that's still kind of something that's going on this year, but it was at least interesting to see that he, he does demand a lot of his players in game and, and isn't just, you know, giving them, you know, back rubs all the time and being like, good job, or it's okay. Like, you know, he's, he's demanding and, and that's good to see. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, as much as we talk about like how maybe he's changed a little from last year. And, and I do think he's changed his approach. Like he's always had that too. You know, like you don't, you don't have success as a coach really at any level. If you aren't demanding of your players, like no, no coach that wins anything of any worth is just like letting players run the ship and, you know, do whatever they want out there. Like you have to have structure. That's what wins. So when he won in the USHL or in college hockey, like he had to be demanding with his players. He had to have structure. He had to keep hold everyone accountable. Like all that stuff, you know, even his, you know, year plus in Dallas. I mean, they win a playoff round. He had some, his teams played great team defense when he was there. So um, yeah, like it, it's, it's always been there. We probably just didn't, see as much of it last year again because they were so good that it's it was probably easy for him to maybe sit back a little and just be complimentary because it's like how how hard can you possibly be when the team's winning more games than any team's ever won before and he joked about that he said i i could have just sat there the whole year he 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 said that in post game press conferences to us before like that he's just he was kind of just along for the ride. The team was going to be good. Like that, that was just a, it was a great team. So this year it's more probably back to what he's used to, I would say. Um, uh, having to try to work through and, and teach through mistakes and make adjustments and, and all that kind of stuff. But still, it's not like he, the team is once again playing well enough where it's not like, okay, he has the hardest job in the league. And that's probably one of the reasons why he's probably not going to win Jack Adams uh, this time around is because, like you said, those other those other two coaches out west in Winnipeg uh, and then and Rick Tockett is, uh, they're they're having to to work more towards a, a roster that maybe isn't a hundred percent, where it's do it's outperforming where they they might have thought it was. Obviously, in Winnipeg they have good goaltending and you know what have you, but uh, yeah, maybe, maybe Montgomery won't be winning that award again, though. He's still probably, I would say like top three. So, I mean, that's still, that's still something. He's a, he's a Jack Adams caliber coach and that's all that really matters. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. You know, not, not the greatest postseason for him last year, but everything besides that um, he's been great, obviously. Um, so Bridget, I think earlier you mentioned how James Van Riemsdyk kind of did to the flyers, what he's done to the Bruins, a lot of his career. Um, David Pasternak, I don't think any one player owns another franchise more than in the NHL than Pasternak owns the Flyers. He has, I think last night was his 29th or 30th game against the Flyers in his career. He's got just as many goals almost um, against that team. I mean, I I know for sure he has at least a couple of hat tricks against the Flyers. Um, and it was cool because he was asked about after the game, just his success against Philly and, and um, his answer was really cool. And uh, he talked about how, he was drafted in Philadelphia and that's where his NHL dream started. And for a player to still have that recognition and that appreciation for the building that he was drafted in, you know, just the, the host city, um, you know, that, 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 that speaks to his, 
his um maturity i think as a player his self-awareness and as a person right like he's self-aware of his beginnings and whatnot and um he was certainly playing like a man on fire yesterday um outside of the goal scoring to his overall game he's just so much more mature physically he wins one-on-one battles and he, he looks like a men, men amongst boys out there uh and yeah just another full-on display of dominance against the flyers yesterday yeah i thought, I thought it was weird when he added that cheese steaks uh power his superpowers thought that was a little weird no i'm just kidding but um yeah no clear like he's been lights out against philly and to to some extent like that stuff can also can often just be random where you're like especially if it's not really a division rival it's like okay like he owns this one team you know that just seems random maybe they haven't been very good obviously the flyers haven't been for the last several years um, but yeah, that connection to the draft is, is pretty cool. The fact that, um, that that still, still means something to him to be there. But, um, yeah, I mean, I want a cheesesteak. This I'm hungry. This, this is what Scott does. I, I haven't, I, can, I, I too haven't thought of a thing since he mentioned that. Other yep, than that. I was just thinking, yeah, last word I heard out of your mouth was cheesesteak. Well, then I'll, I'll drop a little hot take here. Phil, the Philly cheesesteaks, like the famous ones, Pat's and Gino's overrated extremely overrated. i don't really care where i get the cheesesteak from if i'm being honest with you i might have to go make one myself but i now i want one yeah uh the best the best cheesesteak i've had in philly was uh it was jim's it was called jim steak um there's also a place called john's roast pork which i don't know if the listeners are familiar but like a roast pork sandwich is like a f- famous thing it's like broccoli rob or something like that it's it's good but they have good steaks um, and there's a couple others I'm missing too, but and any thanks, thank you very much, Scott. <laughs> uh, because, because here's the problem: now, not only am I craving a cheesesteak, if I wanted a cheesesteak, because we're in Boston, there's no way to. Eh, what am I gonna do? Go to D'Angelo's or go to Papa Gino's for a cheesesteak? <laughs> I mean, cheesesteaks in. I mean, obviously, any house of pizza or you know has like you get a steak and cheese um, with you know peppers and onions and stuff, but uh, it's just a different. It's a different product. Also, yeah. it's it's snowing out in Lowell, so I'm not not going anywhere to get a cheesesteak. So yeah, I've, I've I've screwed myself over here as well, guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is why we can't record at lunchtime. Let's get let's 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 get back on the track. What are we talking about? Chick Fil A? No, 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 no. Passion Act and Philly. Can't get that on Sunday either. No, you can't. Son of a bitch. <laughs> All right, All let's right. let's let's keep going here. Let's keep going. Well, all right, so. One thing that popped into my mind during while we were talking about like the standings and and the state of the Bruins and where they're at at the unofficial like halfway point of the season, even though it's a little bit more than that, is that I was like, oh, well, I'm going to check how many games until the trade deadline. There's only 16 games left for Boston until the trade deadline. And it's just a little bit over a month away from now when we're recording on on January uh, 28th because it's um, March 8th is the trade deadline. Uh, so 16 games to, to kind of figure out what you need uh, and, and solidify a team. And, and, you know, that, that being your last opportunity to, to try to fill in your gaps, whatever they may be at, at that point in the season, we only have 16 games coming up here before we're starting to talk more seriously about trade options. Obviously we've had those conversations throughout the year, you know, goalie trade brusque are you bringing in another uh top six winger 
But now that we're, we're kind of getting to the point where those conversations are going to start heating up and we're going to start hearing other names connected to the Bruins or, or you know, it's about that time of year is what I'm trying to say. We're, we're about to head into trade deadline talk. I think a lot more coming up. Yeah, for sure. And it's going to be interesting to see where this goes. Cause I still feel like, feel like it can shift a lot during that time. Like all along we, and probably everyone else has been like, Oh, they're, they're going to need another score. Another ideally top six forward, maybe, you know, top nine, maybe a third line is fine. But whether it's a center or a wing, like it's got to be a forward. Now, all of a sudden, where they're scoring as much as they are, not that I'm saying, you know, you're all set there. Like, I don't think any team ever really feels like they're all set. You know, even even last year's Bruins added on both defense and it up front. Um, but like what they can do and where they decide to prioritize, we know, you know, they've already traded away a bunch of picks. They don't have a lot coming up that they can move. They don't have a ton of high-end prospects. Um, but, you know, I do think that the, there's questions on defense too. Like you would love if over this next month, the the left side especially settles in, whether that's Grizzly really picks up his play. Now we got to see where Forbert's going to be at after, you know, re-aggravating or another injury or whatever it is. What do you have in Mason Lori? Like, can you count on him this season? Or is he still a little too early in his development curve to really be, you know, potentially an everyday player for you by the end of the regular season, heading into the playoffs? Like, you would love if all of that got sorted out internally and you feel better about it. But right now, the reality is that Matt Grizzlick has mostly struggled this season at the very, at, at best, has been inconsistent. Forbert has been injured a bunch and is injured again. Lori has showed flashes, has also had some growing pains, has been up and down, is back in Providence right now. Parker Wotherspoon, nice story for sure, valuable player to have. But, you know, I don't think he's playing like top four come playoffs. Um, so that there there is stuff to get sorted out there too. So uh, this this is an unfair question because it takes a little bit of research and 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 um, opinion, but I'll ask it anyway because because why not? Uh, is there anybody um, in particular that because now we're at the midway point of the season, you can start to gauge that unless there's you know some sort of 2019 St. Louis Blues storyline, which sorry to pour salt in that wound, but um, you can look at towards the bottom of the standings and see all right to Bridges Point. We're talking 16 games away from the trade deadline. You can start to see what teams might be thinking about being sellers. Personally, it's it's too early for me to have really done homework on on those teams and uh, what players might be sold or might might become available at the deadline um, to really have a bit of a wish list. Same for you guys. Have you started to look at some of those bottom teams to see who might be selling and pieces you might think the Bruins could look to acquire? I so I mean, there's some teams that are you know, I think almost certainly going to be selling Ottawa, Montreal, um, Buffalo, most likely Columbus. Although I don't really know what they have for pieces, that's a pretty young team. Um, you know, like Chicago again, a team that's way out of it but doesn't have a lot of pieces. Um, 
Anaheim probably moves something. Calgary, Calgary remains the most interesting. I think that's where a lot of these conversations start. You look at things like different trade boards and it's a bunch of flames at or near the top of it. Um, they're still not like totally out of it. No, they're, they're only four points out of a wild card spot. Yeah. So what exactly they're thinking is in many ways, that's going to like totally shift what's what happens this trade deadline because because they have so many pending free agents and it's like either you you think you can go for it and it's worth hanging on to those guys even if you don't re-sign them or you say you know what maybe we're close but we're not going to get there let's get something for these guys and obviously that's Elias Lindholm, Noah Hannafin, Chris Tanev, um, possibly others but yeah, and then San Jose is another one who's way out of it. Their guys they could potentially move have some term, like like Tomas Hurdle, his name always comes up. So um yeah, that's I guess sort of like a quick overview, but Calgary is really the most interesting one. Yeah, and I kind of I get the sense based on how ownership has dealt with stuff in the past in Calgary that they they're willing to just like call it a season and just be like we'll get them next year. <laughs> like we start selling, try to recoup some assets and yeah. Well, I mean, well sorry, Bridget, you were saying. No, I pretty much finished. What I was saying. Uh, looking, looking at the flames, like players that could be of interest to the Bruins. I feel like they carry some heavy contracts and like, I mean, Blake Coleman, I think like he, 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 he got himself a bag a couple of years ago after leaving Tampa. Um, he's their leading scorer right now. No, it's not Kadri or um, Lindholm or Huberto or, you know, it's, it's, it's Blake Coleman, interestingly enough. Um, but Kadri's another one like Kadri. I think, you know, he signed a big ticket after his time in Colorado. Huberto did um, Lindholm. We've talked with him in the past. He's on an expiring contract, but yeah, it just also, it kind of like, like, does it even fit financially for the Bruins? Some of these players, you know, do you want to take on a Blake Coleman? I don't have his contract in front of me. I just know he signed, probably an uncomfortable amount for maybe what he is. But then again, he's also their leading scorer. So I don't really know. Yeah. He's got four years left, 4.9 million. I, I mean, unless he demands a trade, I, I would think they probably hang on to him. But um, I, I mean, the thing is, is like for this year, some of those contracts are for Elias Lindholm, 4.85, Noah Hannafin, 4.95. Like, those are relatively affordable for this year, especially when you're going to be talking about every contender is pretty much already up against the cap. So you're talking about either having to move some salary out to make it work or retain salary somewhere. Um, those small cap hits for this year, you know, could actually be pretty valuable in terms of a team acquiring those guys. I um, like Noah Hannafin. I just wonder how much you'd have to give up for him. Like Noah Hannafin yeah. would be a great addition, but that he would also be a great addition to other other contenders. Right. Yeah. I mean, so, he's 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 a top four defenseman in his prime. So the, yeah. that's gonna, yeah, it's gonna cost, and that's gonna be the question: is like, can the Bruins do something like that? Because well, think about what they had to spend for Lindholm. They had to give up a first round draft pick, and they we've talked about how they've gotten rid of most of those that they can move, and you know they don't have a lot of draft capital. And, and I will also say, and this is getting ahead of things a little bit, but it just feels like it's worth mentioning. Like 
if this injury for Forbert ends up being serious again, if he does go back on long-term IR, that frees up $3 million. So now, you know, you would be in, in terms of being able to add salary, you would be in better shape to be able to do that. Obviously it would mean, you know, you've lost Forbert for the season, which presents its own problems in terms of defensive depth, but. So I think we're, we're getting towards the end of this episode. Um, I guess one last thing we can discuss uh, today is we've talked about it in the past. I mean, the Bruins can't, you know, what, what constitutes a successful season, right? Most would say playoff success, especially following a successful regular season. Bruins can't do anything about that for, you know, three months um, well, two months or so. Um, what can they do in the meantime, the second half of the season to make sure that they are as prepared as possible to not allow history to repeat itself um, this spring. I mean, obviously the NHL is a competitive league. Not every first round exit is, is created equally, but obviously the Bruins, they want to, they want to get past the first round. What, what, how can they continue to create good habits? Health is important. Obviously that's kind of obvious, but aside from health, if you're Jim Montgomery, what are you doing this year? Maybe that's different than last year to keep this team ready for, for when it matters most. I think it's, you know, a lot of what he's been preaching all season, which is that this team's identity and the way this team's going to have to win is winning battles at the net front. It's getting not one, but, but multiple bodies to the front. He said Saturday, um, he was asked, you know, areas he still thinks they need to improve. And he said in, in the D zone, winning battles at their own net front, he still thinks they can be better. And we have seen that crop up as an issue at times. So I think it's continuing to harp on those points. And um, it, it would be a good thing if the Bruins have to keep doing those things in order to win games and rack up points. If, if all of a sudden, like they start running into a string of games like Philly, where, they can just like run teams out of the building. Like that's almost not a good thing. Cause then you can start to win games without working on all those habits and, and developing them night after night. Um, but I don't think they're going to have a lot of games like that. Like, I, I think they're, I think it's going to be a competitive second half where there's going to be a lot of teams fighting for playoff spots, playing desperate and the Bruins just aren't, they aren't that head and shoulders above other teams in terms of talent. Well, look no further than February alone cannot allow them to get comfortable because, first of all, you're going to be battling rust after the All-Star break, but you look at their February schedule. We just Bridget just mentioned Calgary's a matter of points outside the wild card. You got you come back home, you play them. Vancouver, who's atop the standings with you, Washington, um, Tampa, mm -hmm. Seattle's pesky, the Kings, Dallas, top team. Uh, Edmonton hasn't lost since the eighties, Calgary again, Vancouver again, and then Vegas finishes off the, the, the month. So, you know, they're going to have a lot of, uh, a lot of big tests, a lot of different teams, different, different places in the standings, but everybody has something to play for. And, and so February alone, you can't, you can't take any days off. Well, yeah, and if, if you look at March too, they, they have to play Toronto twice in March and Toronto is a team right now that's in the wild card and not, not exactly where we predicted them to be at the end of the season so you're getting some more of those rivalry games in the later parts of the season as well they have one game right before the trade deadline and one game right after the trade deadline with toronto i actually think i saw somewhere recently like in the last 
48, 72 hours that the Bruins might have, and Scott, you might be able to see this on one of your uh, websites, but they, I think they have the second hard, second most difficult strength of schedule for the second half of the season, the Bruins might. If that's true, well, that that's, that's good. That would make sense because the first few weeks of the season, we're like, okay, they're starting out against, you know, Chicago and Anaheim and, and different teams that San weren't going to post. Yeah, San Jose. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I don't have that number in front of me, but that's probably – I mean, just looking at the teams, like it clearly looks like a tough schedule. You've got a couple – you know, a couple more Carolina year. You're getting two with Tampa when they are now starting to at least look like some semblance of Tampa again, whereas early in the season they were struggling. Um, you know, you mentioned Edmonton. Like, by the way, I think Edmonton and Los Angeles, it's like they just – completely traded um, like their seasons. Like Edmonton started awful and is now the hottest team in the league. The Kings started incredible and have now been terrible for like the last few weeks. And, you know, all of a sudden there's talk there about them firing their coach, Todd McClellan. And like, it, it's crazy. Like those, those two in particular just like completely flipped places in that Pacific division. Um, another another team the Bruins play a couple of times in the last few weeks of the season is Florida, so they won't let them, uh, you know, sleepwalk into the postseason. Bridget, yes, we got to get some lunch into us. Uh, so she, she put she, for listeners. Bridget put in the uh, in the chat. Got it. Got to got to go soon and get a cheesesteak. And I think yeah. amen amen to that, Bridget. We are we agree. Um, before we go and and stuff our faces with some uh, some whiz wit. Um, we do want to mention that midweek we're going to be having uh, a full mailbag episode. It's obviously the Bruins are off with the All-Star break, so it's a perfect time for it. Um, Scott, do you want to tell the peeps where they can post their questions again so we can see it? Yeah, you can email us, skatepod at weei.com. Uh, you can tweet at us, at the skatepod. You can throw your question into the, the comment section on YouTube. Um, we check all of them, so... Any, any of those work. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. We hope you have a wonderful work week. Enjoy the all-star game and we will talk to you on Wednesday.